You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you want to find a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. I'm going to go ahead and read Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. This will be our text for this morning. This is the word of the Lord, verse, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And when, the fa- and when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he calls the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. God, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Thank you for speaking it to us. May we be encouraged and strengthened by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there was a man that said back in 1989 that tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, those good things passed down that are good. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living those things that maybe become more important than they ought to be. Tradition is taking good thinking and practices from the past and incorporating it into our lives. We're not the first people to live here, and so it's good for us to take those good things, those trusted things, and implement them into our lives. Traditionalism is when we make those things that have been passed down the unquestioned supreme rule of life. We make them a law unto themselves. And then it becomes legalism. Traditions can become legalism when we measure others' faithfulness and our faithfulness by those traditions. Make sense? Legalism is when we then begin to measure other people's faithfulness 
based on those traditions. And what we find is Jesus confronting legalism and, tra- and uh, traditionalism. Uh, in, we've got this broken down into three parts. Legalists find Jesus to be insufficient. Legalists find Jesus to be insufficient. Okay, We're going to see that in our text, that they find that Jesus is lacking. Despite all of the miracles and all of the good things, all of the scriptures, all of the teaching, everything that he's been doing, they nitpick because he doesn't match one of their man-made standards, and so therefore they find Jesus insufficient. And what you're going to find is that if you go to churches or meet Christians, and they find Jesus insufficient, that's still the definition of legalism today, is finding Jesus insufficient. We, saw that, we see that in the book of Galatians, where Jesus is insufficient. You must also obey the Old Testament law. You must also be circumcised. And Paul just obliterates that idea that Jesus would be insufficient. One of the ways you can define a legalism, a legalist, is someone who finds Jesus to be insufficient. And that's what we see here. We see in verses 1 through 5, look at verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And again, just think about all that Jesus has done, and this is the charge they bring against him. Jesus, they're trying to discredit and disqualify Jesus based on this nitpicky rule that they have for themselves. We see that in verse 1, Jesus is under relentless surveillance from the top dogs. Like this is a delegation from Jerusalem. This is the guys. This is the, like they have gone up the chain. They've called in the managers. They've called in the top people to come and confront Jesus on his, and to, and to give, render a judgment on him. Now, we haven't seen our friends, the Pharisees and scribes, since chapter 3 when they challenged Jesus on the Sabbath and also when they challenged him when he was in his hometown, uh, calling, calling him a, an agent of Beelzebub, an agent of Satan. And so we've had a nice little reprieve for a few chapters from these uh, adversaries of Jesus, but now they're back and they're going to be back with a vengeance and the, and the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is only going to accelerate and escalate. I guess that's the word I'm going to look look for uh it's only going to get worse they're seeking to disqualify jesus's ministry not about and and again this this washing of hands is not the same as we might think it's not about hygiene it's about ritual cleanliness before god it's about being right before god it's about ritual compliance so don't think they're they're eating and they're in fear of getting sick that's not their concern the concern is that you are doing something that god disapproves of that you are ritually uncompliant. And Mark gives us this parenthesis in verses uh, 3 through, what is it, verse 4. 3 and 4. He gives us the, this parenthesis where he explains what's going on. Now, if this, I think, tips, tips, uh, tips us off towards the fact that Mark is speaking to primarily a Gentile audience. Probably in Rome. He's probably speaking to Gentiles because he's explaining a tradition that would be pretty, pretty common to, to Jewish people at the time. They would kind of understand what he's talking about. But the fact that he takes a couple verses to explain this means that he's speaking to non-Jewish people, bringing them in on an inside debate. This is a debate that had been going on for some time on, uh, on this washing of hands. And, um, and so he explains what it is. Here it is in the parentheses, verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and even dining couches. 
So the tradition of the elders goes clear back really almost to the time of Moses because when God gave the law in the Torah, they identified 613 laws, 613 mitzvah. But even with that many laws and that many specifications, there were still so countless, uh, countless applications that needed to be figured out. Okay? Couldn't work on the Sabbath, but what exactly qualifies as work or not work? And so religious teachers and elders would then give interpretations of going, hey, this is what God means by this. And so they would come up with traditions, with teachings that would then get passed down uh, orally and then eventually get written down. These trusted teachers gave oral interpretations about the law, oral applications called the Talmud, later the Mishnah, etc., that are written down. We can still, you could Google them up and read them. And what they did in these, in these um, teachings was they called it a fence about the law or a fence about the Torah, a hedge around the law. And what it was is they were trying to protect people from breaking the law. Therefore, they, brought, they, they made the line that much further back. They put it, so, so for instance, if it was like you should not go within three feet of this tree, they would say, you know what, let's make a fence, let's make a rule that no one goes within 10 feet of the tree. So it comes from a, a sense of wanting to respect God's law and make sure that no one gets close. But then they began to treat that as equal with God's law. They began to no longer be looking at the Torah and the scriptures themselves, but only listening to the, uh, to the, to the, the tradition of the elders. Mark gives some examples. So if you're in the marketplace, you need to wash, right? Because like, that's what it says right there, uh, that when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat, they do not wash. Um, and, and, and they're calling that, they're calling out Jesus' disciples for also not doing that. Now, if you look in just the previous text, where were they at the end of chapter six? Jesus was in the marketplace healing people. And there was a concern that maybe you touched something that was unclean. So you should probably just wash just to make sure that you are in right standing before God. You need to wash. You need to wash your cups, your pots, your copper vessels, even couches, even your dining couches. There was a belief, a teaching that even the shadow of a Gentile if it crossed over your plate, that would be unclean. You should get rid of that. There was such a, such a fine-tuning interpretation of the law, and, uh, and now they're holding Jesus to this tradition. Is there any basis for this tradition in Scripture? The answer is no. This washing of hands that they're prescribing, there is the only people that were required to wash were the priests and they were, to, they were to have this kind of hand-washing purity, but only in preparation for offering sacrifices. Exodus 30, verses 18 through 21. Exodus 40, verses 30 through 32. I think I have it up there. Or, if it's an Israelite who has a discharge, some, some sort of unhealthy discharge, there was some sort of washings that needed to happen. Leviticus 15, 11. Or the elders after some sort of special sacrifice. Deuteronomy 21, 6. That's according to, common, to uh, theologians Carson and Beale. So, they are taking this hedge about the law. There were, these, there were these requirements for priests in preparation for the sacrifices. And what they had done is they had made a tradition that this is now applicable to everybody in all situations. And now they're condemning Jesus and his disciples based on that, that exaggerated interpretation, false interpretation, from uh, what was required of the priests. Do you see what's happening? Traditionalism. Legalism. They're taking a tradition of the elders and they're applying it as if it is the mark of faithfulness and God never said that. And if there's anything you want to make Jesus mad about, it's when you disregard God's law, <laughs> when you disregard God's teachings and replace it with your own. In verse 5, 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus does not follow or require his disciples to follow man-made traditions. So they call him out. They have the audacity to come. They've put him under surveillance. And they go, Jesus, you are being an unfaithful teacher by allowing your disciples to not follow the traditions of our elders. We've made some rules. You're not following our rules. And so now we have questions about the legitimacy of your claims and your teaching. All of that is at the heart of this. They had the same issue back with the Sabbath. They didn't like how Jesus' disciples were following the Sabbath. Um, there was just all kinds of issues here. So legalists find Jesus to be insufficient. In light of all the things that he's done, this is what they're, this is what they're ticked off about. Verses 6 through 13, Jesus condemns all religious hypocrisy. So here's Jesus' response. And Jesus comes on pretty strong. Jesus comes on really strong. They have crossed a line here by condemning Jesus' disciples based on their standards and not God's. And so Jesus comes to the defense of his disciples. He comes to the defense of all people. Here he goes. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 13. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And just notice what Jesus does here. He quotes from Isaiah 700 years before. And, uh, and it was a judgment against Israel's leaders because they had all kinds of outward formality. They were doing the rituals, doing the ceremonies, but in their hearts they were far from God. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God to hold the tradition of men. You're more concerned about your lips and what you're saying, saying the right things than your hearts, whether your hearts are right with God. And what he does is he uses scripture. Jesus demands, here's, here's I think a principle from this, Jesus demands the supremacy of and obedience to God's word. So you have left the word of God to make a religion of your own doing. You've made your own traditions and you're worshiping me in vain. And so he demands supremacy of and obedience to God's word. He uses scripture to diagnose their error. You notice that? In Isaiah 29, 13, he confronts them with scripture. He uses scripture to expose their hearts from God's perspective. Here's what you're doing. I see what you're doing. The scriptures see what you're doing. This is so and he also uses scripture to confront how they've rejected scripture. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So Jesus uses scripture to show how they have rejected Scripture. Verse uh, 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. It's like you have come up with a really clever way to create a loopholes for yourself. You've created your own applications that make you look more spiritual than God's law, make you look smarter, and now you've created nice little loopholes where you can look godly but not be godly. Example, verse 10, he gives an example. He said, Moses said, meaning just the Old Testament law, Moses said, and this is the fifth commandment, says, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That is from Exodus 21, 15 through 17. So kids, watch out, right? Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Why is that important? Because your father and mother are the ones who gave you life, and they're what teaches you what's true, Right? They care for you. They provide for you. And so your parents provide a bit of a God-like 
role in your life. God calls himself a father. And so honoring your father and your mother, God says, that's, that's, that's like honoring me, the one who gave you life, the one who leads you and provides you and protects you. There's a, there's a parallel between God as father and how we treat, other, uh, treat our own father and mother. And if our, other, our own father and mother are being faithful in the ways of God, we have a responsibility to honor and, uh, and obey them as if they, because they're playing, they're playing the role of, of God in some, in some lesser sense. Verse 11, here's what they're doing. She's like, so that's clear. The Bible's really clear in the fifth commandment and the penalty for breaking the fifth commandment. This is what God wants. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, another parenthesis there, so that his Gentile readers would know what's going on. And then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So here's what we find in this section is that Jesus despises twisted application of Scripture for selfish gain. Jesus despises twisted applications of Scripture for selfish gain. Three indictments. You leave the commandments of God. You reject the commandments of God. You void the word of God. You have left the command of God to hold to the tradition of men. You misrank the priority of God's law for your own personal benefit thinking that for some, that, that Corbin, that the principle of Corbin is more important than taking care of your parents. There's a hierarchy within the law. Certain laws are of greater priority and greater uh, intensity than others. Jesus will get to this when he gets to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because there's a man in the, di- in the ditch who's injured, who's been beaten up and robbed, and a priest and a Levite pass by because they don't want to touch something unclean. And so what they do is they break the greater law of help your neighbor so he doesn't die, not, hey, you're going to be unclean until the evening. That's all the penalty was for touching something that was unclean, was that you're unclean until the evening, which just means you can't offer sacrifices. But to not help your neighbor is greater in the law. And that's what he's saying here is that you are twisting the principle of Corbin in order to remove the obligation you have to like real people your father and mother whom you're called to love. And so they're twisting it. They're misranking the priority of God's law to your own personal benefit, putting your own spin on it to your own benefit so that you look good and you get what you want. And you void the word of God by controlling others with this warped system. Because it says that you don't even permit others to do something for their father or mother. You're not even like, you're not just like you're breaking the law. Your application, your use of your spiritual authority is actually keeping others from obeying God's law. And Jesus is very upset about this. So again, it's a clear and direct fifth commandment of God to care for and obey your parents, your father and mother. Whoever strikes or reviles their father and mother shall be put to death. They've superseded that commandment that made it in the top ten and superseded it with their own twisted interpretation about keeping vows to God from Leviticus 27 verses 16 through 29 called Corbin. So this is the principle that they're twisting, is that what you could do is you could essentially take something that you own and pledge it. Pledge it, hey, when I'm dead, this will now go to be used for into the temple treasury. My 2007 Ford F-150 truck that wouldn't start this morning, 
I could say, it's Corbin. I can use it for my own personal use. No one else can use it. I can use it for my own personal use. And when I'm dead, it can be gifted to the church. That's the idea. What people would do is they would use the principle of Corbin to then hedge their resources from their parents, from their family. So for instance, like if I said that my house is Corbin and my own parents who live out in the valley, let's say their house burned down and they said, hey, we need a place to stay. I could, according to their tradition, go, no one can live in my house but me until I'm dead. Sorry, it belongs to God. You can't use it, is what they're saying. And not only would they do that themselves, use this twisted idea of making pledges to God. I can't break my pledge to God by letting you come stay in my home. They called that Corbin. And not only were they doing that themselves, they were making other people do that. You can't break your vow to go love your neighbor. You can't do that. And so they've just created this twisted system by which they can use the resources that are dedicated to God, but they can't be using it for God's purposes. It would be a pledge to give someone over to the temple treasury upon your death, but you'd use it for yourself until then. Here's an example that's from some, uh, some literature, uh, some ancient literature. I think this, is, this might be from the Mishnah, I think. I took it from a commentary. I think it's from the Mishnah. But there was a man, uh, there was a, this is an actual scenario, there's a man who had a courtyard that he dedicated as Corbin to the temple. So when he passes away, he can use it himself, until he passes away, and then it will go into the temple treasury. It will become property of the temple and the Jewish system. What happened then is that his own son was going to have a wedding, and he wanted to invite his father, the grandfather, to come to the wedding. But that grandfather was not allowed to set foot in that courtyard because it's Corbin. So what he did was then transferred that courtyard to his neighbor so that then it would be his neighbor's Corbin. Therefore, it wouldn't apply to his own father, and then his own father could come to his grandson's wedding. Fortunately, that neighbor also put it under Corbin, and therefore the grandfather couldn't come to his grandson's wedding, according to the law. That's the tradition of the elders. And Jesus is saying, that is crazy. That is crazy. And you have made up a system that benefits you and denies God's law. That's legalism. And so that's what's happened. Jesus despises twisted application of Scripture for selfish gain. To go against the law of love, as the New Testament talks about it, that we're all under the law of love. And then Jesus also denounces the abuse of spiritual authority. Because what they're doing, you notice that in verse, which verse is it? Verse 12. He says, whatever you have gained, verse 11, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God. Sorry, mom and dad, can't help you. This is dedicated to God. You can't set foot on my property. You can't come near me. You can't use these resources. Starve, die, I don't care. Verse 12, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his own father or mother. So if somebody else has done this, you actually use your own authority to prevent them from loving their father or mother. You will not release them of their lesser vow in order to take care of the greater commandment, thus making void the word of God. So they're forbidding people from being released from Corbin. When they've made a foolish Corbin, now they need to actually care for people, their neighbor. And these guys will use their spiritual authority to go, no, that belongs to us. That's under our jurisdiction now, and you can't use that. That's, spiritual abu that's, that's abusing spiritual authority. To take your position as a teacher of the law, to twist the law in such a way that you actually prevent people from actually loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, from honoring their father and mother. So, at issue here for Jesus, then, is not ritual purity codes per se. It is instead the hypocrisy of their worship. 
We see that in chapter 3 with the Sabbath. We see that here in chapter 7 related to ritual purity through washings. It meticulously observes human regulations but hard-heartedly ignores God's requirements for the welfare of people. Do you see what's happening here? They're challenging Jesus and Jesus spins it right back on. Let's turn the mirror on you. Who's the lawbreaker here? You have twisted scripture, you have come up with traditions, and you use it to actually justify your own false worship. You want to know who God rejects? It's not the one who fails to wash their hands. That's your rule. It's the one that won't even love their own father and mother. And he says, and you do many such things. This is one example of ways that you twist and create traditions, and then you impose them on other people. You hold them accountable, and you condemn them based on your rules. And your rules, not only are they additions to God's law, They're actually rivals to God's law. They undermine God's law. This is a nasty indictment. This is satanic, what they're doing. And then in verses 14 through 23, Jesus clarifies the true source of defilement. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you. So this is like, this is a teachable moment. (laughs) These Pharisees and scribes have just confronted me, and this is now an opportunity to let you all know what the real deal is. You've been living under a system where all of these barnacles have grown around God's law, all of these concretions, all these additions, and he's just going to cleanse the whole thing. To go, you want to know what the heart of the law was about? You want to know what all of that stuff was getting at? You want to know what God really cares about? More than you putting hedges around the law, the law doesn't need hedges. It doesn't need fences. What it needs is it needs to be removed. It needs to have all of these things removed and he's going this is what is at the heart of God this is what is at the heart of the law this is what all of those things are trying to point you to verse 14 he called the people again to himself he said hear to me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him this is a public teachable moment To go, hey, your biggest issue, it's not like you are by default this sinless, perfect being and that if you could just not come in contact with the wrong things, then you would automatically be right with God because of your lineage or because of your heritage, because of stuff you know. He's like, no, 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 that's not it. Your biggest issue is the uncleanness that's already in you. Do you want to know what breaks your relationship with God? It's not what you did or didn't touch, what you did and didn't eat. What it is, is it's the sinful realities of your own heart. Jesus goes beyond just what you touch, but actually even goes what's, what's in you. The intent of the law has always been to expose the sinful hearts of men. You're not fundamentally good inside and need to protect yourself from bad things on the outside. You are fundamentally bad from the heart, and it gets exposed in what you do. Nothing outside you makes you clean if you're unclean. If your heart is not right with God, you can keep all the laws you want. You're not clean before God. And if you are clean before God from the heart, there is nothing from the outside that can take that cleanliness away from you. Attitudes and actions that come out reveals whether or not you're clean or unclean before God. Not what goes in. It's what comes out that shows your true condition, not what goes in. Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked about the parable. So 
That was the public teaching. It was kind of vague. That was just a large principle, right? He didn't give a lot of explanation. Now he's entered into the house, and it's just he and his disciples. He gives them a private interpretation here. This is going to have massive effects down the line. Here's what he says to them. These disciples, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? He's like, can't you think about the applications of this? That the real problem is the human heart, and that if the human heart is wrong, nothing on the outside will fix that. And if the human heart is right and clean before God, nothing on the outside really can change that. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, literally goes into the latrine. Some people have had a hard time with the fact that Jesus said toilet here. He's like, that goes in and goes right back out. Your body has a way of dealing that. It doesn't affect your heart, doesn't affect your relationship with God. And then we have this parenthesis from Mark. Thus, he declared all foods clean. That's a big deal. So a special interpretation and clarification for the disciples only here. And he gives this to them. This is going to be really important down the line. I've got some scriptures up there that show you some of the Old Testament connections, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Those are the Old Testament dietary laws that Jesus very clearly is, uh, is, has said that they have come to their completion, um, that they won't carry on. And then you'll see all kinds of the, the first Acts 10, 11, 15, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Romans 14, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 4, and Revelation. Well, that's kind of a different one. Those deal with kind of the, the, the difficulty of dealing with the fact that these food laws are no longer in effect for the new covenant. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the laws or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so the law is broken up into the civil, the moral, and the ceremonial. And the civil and the ceremonial at the completion of Jesus' work will fall away and it will be the moral. And he's going to get to that here at the end of this passage. So is this a parable? Because they come to him and say, Hey, this is a parable, right? You're giving us this story, but you're talking about something else, right? Is this a parable? Yes and no. No, it's not a parable. They're misunderstanding because Jesus is literally, authoritatively declaring all foods clean. The food laws have come to their fulfillment and completion, Leviticus 11 and 14. Mark includes a parenthesis like he did before because Gentiles would not know this yet, right? He's making this very clear. Hey, Gentile believers, we've been wrestling with this and just know... Just know, and this, the source of this uh, account is from Peter. Peter's the one who had the vision in Acts 10. He talks about 11, in verse uh, chapter 11. They have a whole council that's sort of related to how Gentiles should relate to the Old Testament law in Acts chapter 15. And then it kind of carries out as they give instructions about this. And, um, and so Mark includes this parenthesis that thus he declared all foods clean so that Gentiles would know no. You do not, this is not part of being right with God. Is Jesus guilty of the very same thing by elevating his teaching over the Torah, right? He just, he just called them out for replacing the law of God with the traditions of men. Did he just now do the same thing? The answer would be no, because Jesus, unlike these scribes and Pharisees, has the authority to interpret the law. He has the authority. He said back in chapter, was it two or three, where he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath. I have the authority to declare how the law now relates in light of the new covenant. Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God and so fulfilling the Old Testament purity laws. 
Like I just read a few minutes ago, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. They're important, but I have not come to abolish them to fulfill them. But they have pointed out. They have pointed. They have been driving towards something. But now that the completion is here, those laws, those ceremonial laws, those civil laws, those now have uh, reached their completion in Jesus. And now you give your attention to these things. Only the lawgiver has the authority to do what Jesus just did here. The gospel is, in essence, new wine. From Mark chapter 2, verse 22, it's new wine that cannot be poured into old wineskins of Judaism and Old Testament law. So he's already giving them this indication that this is where this is going, this is where this new covenant is going. At the same time, yes, it is a parable. Because this is a parable about bringing the formerly unclean, that which was once declared unclean, as clean. When we get to Acts Chapter 10, 11, 15, we're going to realize that Gentiles, much like food, was considered unclean. Certain kinds of people were declared unclean. Now, in this new covenant, people who were once formerly considered unclean are now brought near. And we see this connection that's going to happen, um, where this connection with food and fellowship and those who we fellowship with, unclean food was associated with Gentiles. Well, now the Gentiles are going to be brought in. And what we're going to see over the next couple of chapters is that Jesus is going to go do ministry now in Gentile country. He is done doing ministry in Galilee now in the book of Mark. He's going to go to the Gentiles now. So this story and this challenge and his declaring all foods clean, he's also declaring that all people are clean. No no one is automatically outside the plan of God if they will repent and believe in him. I hope that makes sense. Jesus is shifting the plan from a come and see to a go and tell. And part of that shedding off will be that which divided Jew from Gentile, including the dietary laws of Leviticus 11 and 14. Mark's, uh, Jesus, according to Mark, already declared to be the Holy One of God in Mark's first mighty deed, chapter 1, and having cleansed lepers, also in chapter 1, he's forgiven sins in chapter 2, he has restored an impure woman, chapter 5, he's raised an unclean corpse, chapter 5, he's cast out unclean spirits, in chapters 1, 3, 5, and 6. And he sees no threat at all about engaging these unclean people, these unclean situations, because he is clean. What is clean cannot be made unclean from what is outside. Jesus is of such a power and such a cleanliness that he brings his cleanliness, and instead of becoming unclean, he makes unclean things clean. He makes unclean things clean. His purity is more powerful than the uncleanliness. And now we can go to people who were formerly unclean and with the power of the gospel they can be brought in to us we need not fear those people those places those things that were formerly fearful verse 20 and he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and he essentially lays out what looks like a summary of the moral law of the old testament This looks like, in some respects, some of the Ten Commandments. You want to know what really defiles you? From within, out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, food, foolishness, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defiles a person. That's what you need to be focused on. The hand-washing tradition of the elders, you do not have to worry about that. That is not your biggest problem. The food laws are not of your concern. Those cannot make you clean if you're unclean from the heart. 
They cannot make you unclean if you're clean from the heart. What you need is a cleansing from the heart. You want to know what the concern is, is the evil thoughts that come from your heart, the sexual immorality, the theft, the murder, the adultery. Those are evidences of an unclean heart. That's what defiles you. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, thinking you know better than others, foolishness. The foolishness there is not just, hey, you do dumb things. It's the willful resistance of submission to God. It's knowing that you should submit yourself to God, knowing that you should obey Jesus, and refusing to do so. He says all these things come from within. They are what defiles a person. That's what I want you to give your attention to. God wants you to give his attention. That was always the intent of the Old Testament law too, is what comes out of your heart, not what goes into your hands or touches your lips or goes into your stomach or ends up in the toilet. Those are not what we're concerned about here. Pigs and fish and seafood and insects and lizards and Gentiles. Specifically, sinful actions towards others, the first six, you notice that? Sinful actions towards others, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Those are all actions that we do that both uh, disrespect, dishonor God, and also another person. That loving God and loving neighbor. But then there's also what defiles you is sinful attitudes, which are the final, what, six to eight, however you want to group them together. Sinful attitudes about others and God. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's the actions and the attitudes that come out that reflect whether or not your heart is clean or unclean. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Legalists look at the outside. God looks at the heart. Traditionalists Again, some of that's good, but some of that's bad if it becomes then the rule of life that covers up a defiled heart. Trace the fruit of your life back down to the root and start there. And Jesus has come to deal with those things that are internal because we all have sinful hearts before God. We're all guilty of the things on this list. And Jesus has come to deal with those things, the defilement from the heart. This brings to the end Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's going to be in Gentile country now for a while, and we're going to see that this symbolism of unclean food now being no longer unclean, he's now going to go to unclean Gentiles and have fellowship with them. He's going to take them in, so to speak. Just as you weren't supposed to take in unclean food, well, now you can, and you're to take in unclean people, (laughs) formerly unclean people, who respond rightly to Jesus, they now, you have fellowship. You bring them in now, too. And he'll eventually, opposition will go up. The the density of his disciples will get thicker. You're just going to see that he's going to butt heads with his disciples. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand what he's going for. And here we have some applications, just a few things to walk away with. Beware. Beware of traditionalism and legalism in your own heart and life. In fact, I put up here, root out traditional and and legalism from your own heart and life. Do you have a biblical foundation for the things that you hold so tightly, the things that you orient yourself around? A rule of life is good. It's good for us to have rhythms and routines and, and rituals and traditions. 
but we must never bind the consciences of others to anything but the scriptures. One thing that's going to be really important in 2024 as we come into election year is that it's going to, we're going to hear from some Christians that faithful Christians will only vote X. And they'll begin to put a standard of faithfulness on Christians that isn't actually from Scripture. Does that make sense? There are certain things in Scripture that are a one-to-one. They're a straight-line issue. There are certain issues in life that are jagged line issues. Like you have to kind of reason your way there. And Christians could reasonably loving the scriptures come to a different application. Right? So we have to be very careful as a church. I try to be very careful as a pastor to not bind anyone's consciences to anything that other than the word of God. Does that make sense? So we need to beware of traditionalism and legalism in our own heart and life and root it out. And root it out. And again, the traditionalism and legalism not traditions those can be good but traditionalism and are we ultimately and foremost tethered to the word of god that's really important and it's really important that we do that with each other romans 14 is super helpful one person feels like they can eat anything another person says they can only eat certain things give room for each other to do that some people think of one day as being a very special day other person thinks of all days being the same. You should all be in the same church together. This should not separate or divide you. You should not bind one another's consciences over those, so, those sort of things. That should not necessarily be the mark of faithfulness one way or the other. Give each other some room to grow. Let iron sharpen iron. Don't just bail on each other or come to false conclusions about one another's faithfulness based on rules that are just sort of external to the scriptures or applications that scripture itself doesn't directly state give attention first and foremost to the cleansing of your heart kevin de young says this he says the world says we are what we do but jesus says we do out of what we are and so we need to look at who we are from the heart what is coming out of us is it love of god and love of neighbor or is it jealousy rivalry gossip criticism cynicism that says something about our heart i love what revelation 2 1 through 6 says i think i have time for this revelation 2 1 through 6 listen to this jesus comes and gives his assessment of the church at ephesus he says i know your works your toil your patient endurance And how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested these who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. It's like there's so many good things that I see externally going on. You hold the right doctrine. You're disciplined. You can't stand evil. You can't stand false teaching. You call them out. You're enduring patiently. You're not quick to quit when things get hard. And bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. All of your orthodoxy, all of your discipline, all of your endurance is useless if there isn't a love for Jesus. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned, abandoned the love you had at first. You're just busy doing religious things and you're not worshiping me from the heart. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are getting far from me. He says, verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. 
Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. I'm going to close your church. You're very orthodox. You're very disciplined. You're very enduring church. If it doesn't love me from the heart, right? Be clean from the heart. And here's the reality. If you are not in Christ, if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are unclean from the heart. And your actions and your attitudes show that. But if you are in Christ today, then you are clean from the heart. And there is nothing that this world can throw at you that would make you unclean or defiled in his sight. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. If he has justified you, you are justified. If God has justified you, then who can condemn, as Romans 8 says? Nothing from the outside can make you unclean if you have been cleansed by Jesus. So that's the call to all of us. So if we find ourselves convicted over the fact that I have an unclean heart, maybe my behavior is fine on the outside, maybe my rituals, all that, but I do not have a love for Jesus in my heart. I don't have an affection. I am unclean from the heart. Then turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in him and he will forgive you and he will make you clean from the heart and that can never be taken away from you. And then, lastly, let's prepare to eat the food, eat together the food from the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is a radical expression of Jesus and his gospel. When Jesus was with his disciples on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. He fundamentally changed Passover to be not just about delivering a people from Egypt under bondage in Egypt by the blood of a lamb but now delivering people from the bondage of sin in their hearts the real oppressor by the blood of his own by his own blood he reinterpreted the Old Testament law he changed what it represented and he changed the meaning of it for us and he invited unclean Gentiles to now come to this cleansing meal of the Lord's table it's a radical freedom for all who partake of it by faith. And again, taking these elements does not make you right with God. Nothing that you eat can make you clean in the heart. But if you have been made clean by Jesus on the inside, then you are invited to show it by taking part on the outside. The Lord's Supper is for those whom Jesus has invited into his kingdom, for those who have received his invitation by repentance and faith, those who have publicly recognized through Jesus uh, identified with Jesus through baptism and connected to his people, those living from the heart, a love for Jesus from the inside out, those who have been cleansed by Jesus and are living for his glory. If that's you, then you're welcome to come and grab the elements and sit down and I will lead us in taking them together. If that's not you or you're not sure, then I would encourage you to just sit and watch. Just watch as the people of God partake in the meal that God is, that Jesus has given us. And then I'd love to talk to you if that's where you're at. If you're not sure where you're at spiritually, you're not sure if you should partake, if you're unsure of whether you have a right relationship of God, with God, if you're unsure whether or not you are clean before God, I would love to talk to you about that. And ultimately, receiving Jesus is more important than receiving bread and some juice. They're just symbols that represent the real thing of taking Jesus in by faith. Think and pray about what's being pictured by this practice. It's not a mere tradition. This is not traditionalism. 
It's not, it's a command. It's an ordinance. It's a gift. It's an invitation. And Christians have been celebrating this for years, for centuries, for millennial, millennia, as a sign that we belong to Jesus, that we are in communion with him, and to publicly demonstrate our faith that we have on the inside. Let's pray. God, we all acknowledge that we are sinners from the heart. We were born, born that way. We are not in right standing of you with you because we were born as part of the right bloodline or the right nation or that we were born into a Christian family or that we were born doing religious things. God, we confess that we are unclean and under your judgment in and of ourselves. Not just for what we have done or not done, but fundamentally because who we are as rebellious sinners, depraved from the heart. God, we confess all of the ways that we have defied you by breaking your laws. And we confess as sin all the ways that we have tried very hard to be good in our own strength. To honor you with our lips while leaving our hearts far from you. Please forgive us our sins. Make us clean from the inside and enable us by your Holy Spirit to live clean from a heart that is clean. I trust, Lord, we trust in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone for salvation. We trust in that and that alone. Protect us from legalism and traditionalism. Help us to live in all of the freedom that you have purchased for us. And God, help us to invite even those whom we might deem unclean, unworthy, of fellowship, unworthy of salvation, unqualified. God, may we believe and know that if they receive the Lord Jesus Christ, they are clean. And so, Lord, we come to your table. We come to this ordinance in obedience, in gratitude for what you have done for us. We thank you for this scripture and the way that Jesus defends his disciples from those who would wish to do them harm, to put shackles of legalism on them. We thank you that you do the same thing through your word to protect us, to point us to the things that matter most and deal with our sin, but then also protect us from those who might want to add more than what you require. Lord, so I just pray that you would help us as a church to keep the main things the main things, the right things the right things. Lord, keep us from both licentiousness and from legalism. God, we thank you how your Lord's Supper binds us together, draws us together to you and to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.